Well, now, over the next uh, weeks, we'll be considering some of the objections against Christianity under the title Christianity Under Scrutiny. If you're not a committed Christian, I hope these next weeks you'll be able to hear a considered response to some of the big big objections to Christianity. A friend of mine said some years ago, before I became a Christian, I used to think that you'd have to pull your brains out down through your nose and flush them down the toilet to become a Christian. In his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins says there are no good reasons for people to be a Christian. And the only reason people are Christian is because they are, quote, immune to argument, their resistance built up over years of childhood indoctrination using methods that took centuries to mature. Well, over these next weeks, we will use careful argument. So I want to make this appeal to you. Please do not flush your brain down the toilet before coming to church because you will need it. It would also be quite messy. Um, If you are a Christian, I hope uh, these next weeks will both inform you and equip you. Inform you, because if I can speak frankly, many Christians don't have good answers when they are questioned about their faith. And so I can only assume that they don't know the answers to these questions. See, when I hear some Christians speaking to unbelievers, I'm not persuaded by their answers, and I don't expect anyone else to be either. And so I trust over these next weeks we will both be informed and equipped so that we're more able to answer questions at work and university, at school and at home. Well, with those things in mind, let me pray for us now. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we've been singing that you would lead us. and We pray now you would guide us in our thinking, lead us to be better equipped to answer questions, and if we're not yet Christian people, lead us to know that you exist and what you're like, that we may want to serve you for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this evening then, we're considering the question, how do you know God exists? There's a handout that uh, hopefully you'll find tucked inside the uh, service order. If you like those sorts of things, um, then you can at least see uh, where we're going. When I used to work in the newspaper industry, I had uh, many conversations with my colleagues about Christianity. I remember uh, one conversation over lunch with a colleague and a friend called Steve. Uh, Steve and I were good friends. In fact, uh, Steve asked me to be his best man. We'd often talked about Christian things and at the end of one uh, very animated debate I'll never forget Steve's rather exasperated summary of his position. Paulie said, I believe in God if he were to come and stand in front of me. If I could meet him, talk to him and touch him then I'd be convinced he existed. See, we want proof. Of course we do. So how do we answer Steve and, and people like him? Well, we could go down to the pub and have a great debate about the existence of God. It is a a terrific way to spend an evening. Try it sometime. Go down to the Ranmore Inn with your mates, thrash it out over a pint of orange juice. Uh, You'll have a fascinating discussion and a great evening, but ultimately it'll, it'll get you nowhere. At the end of the evening, it'll be nothing more than a sharing of opinions. Maybe good opinions, maybe bad ones, but, but nothing more than that. Interesting, but never conclusive. So why do Christians believe that God exists? The key word is revelation. Now please take a note of that word. Please tuck it away in your mind. Revelation. Christians believe that God has revealed himself to us. 
Indeed, had he not revealed himself to us, we could never know him or anything about him. And wouldn't it be arrogant to suggest that we could and did know him conclusively? Wouldn't that be an arrogant statement if we in some way thought that we had discovered him? But it's not arrogant if God has revealed himself to us. And he has revealed himself to us through creation, through the Bible and in Jesus I have a friend who's an architect. Now, you have no way of knowing whether that's true or not. You have no way of knowing whether my friend exists or not. And even if he does exist, you have no way, at the moment, of knowing what he's like. How could I convince you of his existence? Well, I could take you to the house that he's built. He's designed it, and it is the most spectacular house that I've ever been in. It's innovative, it's eco-friendly, it's tasteful, it's comfortable, it's everything you'd want in a home. If I borrowed a key and took you round my friend's house, as you walked around it, I'm sure you'd be impressed. And walking around it might begin to convince you that my friend exists. It might not, of course. But if you were convinced that he exists, uh, it wouldn't tell you much about him. It would tell you he was clever, imaginative, that he was pretty rich. But by walking around the house, you wouldn't really know what he was like. You wouldn't know whether he was friendly and kind and thoughtful and compassionate. Or, However, if while we were walking around my friend's house there was an envelope on the kitchen table addressed to you, uh, it was a letter from my friend telling you to make yourself at home, help yourself to tea and coffee, introducing himself to you, telling you about the house, about himself, what he likes, what makes him tick, the sort of character he is, well suddenly you'd know so much more about my friend. But the real clincher about his existence and his character would be when you hear the key turning in the door and when he walked into his house and introduced himself to you, when you shook his hand, when you talked to him, when you got to know him, then there'd be no questions. You'd know he exists and crucially, if you spent long enough with him, you'd know what he was like as well. Now in the same way, God has revealed himself through creation, through what he has designed and built. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Since the creation of the world, you look at the world around you, you can see what God is like. That's what Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says. As we walk through this world, we can begin to see the divine footprint. Those of you who are medics, as you look down through a microscope and consider the human anatomy, you can see the intricacy of his, of his creation, the 75,000 miles of blood vessels in your body that carry blood to over 60 trillion cells. You can see the minute detail of the creation. And then if you swap your microscope for a telescope... Well, then you can begin to marvel at the magnitude of the creation. There are apparently, apparently 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Our sun is 150 trillion miles from the centre of our galaxy. Our galaxy is just one of a cluster of 30 galaxies. Altogether, it is estimated that there are over 100 billion galaxies and each galaxy has over 100 billion stars. Study the creation and and as we look at the intricacies of our world we can see that God is ingenious, stare at the expanse of the cosmos and we can see that God is mighty and powerful. 
See, that's uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. The fact that the world is ordered tells us about God. We could go on and on. All I have to do is walk through the Peak District on a beautiful sunny spring day and it provokes awe and wonder in me. Maybe it doesn't for you, I'm just saying what it does for me. See, we can tell a lot from looking at creation, but it doesn't clinch the deal over the existence of God and it doesn't tell you what he's like. Any more than looking round my friend's house tells you that my friend exists or what he's like. Indeed, uh, Richard Dawkins doesn't think the astonishing order that we see in the cosmos is proof of a creator. He just says that the world has a powerful delusion of design. So look, Christians do believe that God has revealed himself in creation, but we also believe that he has revealed himself in the Bible. If I can take you back to my illustration, the Bible is the, the letter from the architect. It's a big letter. That's sort of what it is. See, uh, Christians believe the Bible is not just a human book written by human authors. We believe that it is a, a divine book inspired and written by God himself, the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is God-breathed, literally breathed out from God. And so as we read this book, God reveals himself to us. The Bible is about the one true living God. That's... That's the big subject, God. Now next week we'll discover why Christians believe the Bible is true and trustworthy, so I'm going to have to leave uh, that to next week. We haven't got time to do everything tonight. God has revealed himself then in creation and in the Bible, but supreme, the supreme revelation of God is Jesus. In his Gospel, John puts it like this, John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God... But God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. How do you know God exists? John says, he has come and walked among us. I hugely admire school teachers. My brother used to be a teacher, and I admired the work he did. Indeed, whenever he was asked what he did for a living, he would reply, I'm a pest control officer for the council, which is a good line for teachers. Uh, teaching is such a difficult profession, isn't it? That's why I, I so love the, the story of the primary school teacher who went into school one Monday morning without much of a lesson plan and clearly lacking inspiration. This morning class we're going to do some painting, she said. So get your aprons on, get out the paints and please begin. You can paint anything, she said. If you're not sure what to paint, paint what you did at the weekend. But I really don't mind what you paint, just paint. So the class began and after a little while the teacher walked around the classroom looking over the shoulders of the pupils to see how they were getting on and they're all manner of paintings. Some of mummy and daddy and the dog in the park, others by the beach, many different scenes. But when the teacher looked over six-year-old Scott's shoulder the paper was just a mass of colour. That's very nice, Scott, said the teacher encouragingly. What is it? Oh, that's God, replied Scott. But no one's ever seen God, said the teacher. To which Scott replied, they have now. <laughs> now that's what Christians believe about Jesus. No one's ever seen God. But when Jesus arrives on the scene, they have now. John chapter 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God. But God the one and only who's at the Father's side has made him known. They have now. 
See, see, when my, my friend Steve from the newspaper days said to me, if I could meet God, talk to him, touch him, then I'd be convinced he existed. I said to Steve, Steve, if you'd been in the right place at the right time, you could have. See, if Steve had been born in the right place, Israel, at the right time 2,000 years ago, he could have seen God, met him, talked to him, touched him even. And that is ultimately why Christians believe that God exists. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. Two two millennia ago, he came down to this tiny blue-green planet and walked among us. Yes, he's revealed himself in creation. Yes, he reveals himself in the Bible. But his supreme revelation of himself is in his Son. And although we weren't born in the right place at the right time, all is not lost because the accounts of Jesus' life have been written down for us so that we can check it out. We can ask, is Jesus really God? And so for the time that's left to us this evening, that's what we're going to do. Is Jesus God? Well, from his action, Jesus demonstrates that he is the creator. And if you're following on the, uh, the handout, we're over the page now. And turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 8 page 1037. I think it will help you if you uh, have a Bible open. We're going to be mainly in Luke's Gospel with a couple of cross-references. Page 1037, Luke chapter 8, verse 22. And we're going to see here how Jesus demonstrated that he was the creator from his very actions. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Verse 22 tells us that Jesus and his disciples got into a boat to cross Lake Galilee. And verse 23, as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Well, you can picture the scene. A huge storm threatened to sink the boat. The entire crew were terrified, convinced they were going to drown. Remember, some of these men were hardened fishermen. This storm must have been quite something. And just when they thought they were doomed, verse 24, the disciples went and woke Jesus up saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And what does Jesus do? Well, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't act like some great Hollywood hero grabbing the helm and steering out of the the whirlwind. He gets up and he commands the whirlwind to stop. And verse 24, instantly the water was calm, instantly. Now that is very impressive. You could dine out on that for a very long time. And let me tell you, there have been plenty of occasions when I wish I could do that. I, I, hate, I hate sailing. I mean, I, I don't mind sort of sailing in a, in a little in a sailing boat, but you know, when it's going on, a, on the, the open sea, I just can't stand it because I get so sick. We, we used to regularly go, um, go skiing, Caroline and I, and um, we'd always go on a ferry, you know, low budget, let's get it there as cheaply as we can. And every time I went on the ferry, I would get as sick as a dog. Uh, usually uh, so sick, I'd just sort of sit outside the toilets for two hours. It's more, in, more information than you need, really, isn't it? I'll never forget the worst crossing of all. As we drove onto the ferry, the crew were securing the vehicles with ropes. I knew it was going to be bad. As others headed for the restaurant to eat at the Smorgasbord, I took my customary position camped outside the toilets. I felt so sick on that journey. When I could stand it no longer, I looked up at Caroline in a pathetic little... I was like a little boy in the back of the car, you know. I looked up at her, Caroline, how much longer before we get there? It's pathetic. (laughs) And I'll never forget Caroline looking at me with that look as if I was pathetic, because I was. (laughs) 
And she said to me, Paul, we haven't left the harbour yet. (laughs) It's a true story. I used to feel so sick on those journeys. What What I'd have done to be able to go up on the deck and command the winds and the waves, be still, stop. Of course, I never did. If I'd have done that, you'd have known I wasn't just sick in my stomach. I was... You and I can't control the wind and the waves, but Jesus did. The storm stopped instantly. But so that we don't think this was just a lucky break for Jesus, you know, freak timing, just managed to do it just at the right time, Luke tells us other things that Jesus performed, other miracles over nature. You don't need to turn it up now, but in chapter 9, Jesus fed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. He even walked on water. And so, you see, we have to ask the question that's here at the end of verse 25. Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Who is this? See, that's the question that the Bible's asking us to answer. And we're not left scrabbling around after the answer. Whenever the Bible asks a question, it gives us the answer as well, so we don't have to guess. Well, look, keep your, your finger or your, uh, or your notes in, in, in Luke and, uh, and turn back with me to, to Psalm 89, the other of our two readings, page 597. Psalm 89. Page 597. This was written about 1,000 years before Christ, roughly there. Now, we've come to Psalm 89 to discover the answer to the question. Luke asks us the question, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this that the winds and the waves obey? Look at Psalm 89, verse 5. The heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. Who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He's more awesome than all who surround him. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? It's obvious who this is about, isn't it? It's clearly talking about the Lord God Almighty. And what does the psalm say of him? Verse 9. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You see how that answers the question. As Jesus calmed the storm, he was doing what only the Lord God Almighty can do. So what do you think? Calming a storm, walking on water, feeding thousands with a few bits of bread and fish? Who is this? You see, when Jesus came to planet Earth, he went around as if he owned the place. Because he does. So from his actions, Jesus demonstrates that he's the creator. Secondly, Jesus demonstrates that he is the restorer. See, come back to me to Luke's Gospel. Read through Luke's Gospel and you'll see over and over again that Jesus healed people. I guess most people know that. You may never have read the Bible. There's no reason why you should know that. But certainly, those of you who've been coming here for a long time know that. Jesus healed people. Let's just look at one example, if we can. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 17, page 1032. 1032, Luke chapter 5. Now here is a man unable to walk, a paralytic, brought to Jesus by his friends. And we read verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, Your sins are forgiven. It's an astonishing thing to say to a man who cannot walk. 
And if we think it displays a remarkable lack of sensitivity, the Pharisees, the religious guys there at the time, thought it was a blasphemous thing to say. Look at verse 21. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's obvious what Jesus is doing, isn't it? He's claiming to be God again. No one can forgive sins except God alone, yet that is exactly what Jesus has done. So who does Jesus think he is? Well, clearly he thinks he's God. Is he? Well, cast your eye down to verse 24. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralysed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them all, took what he'd been lying on and went home praising God. What a remarkable miracle. Instantly the man could walk. Instantly. Uh, My brother had a a leg injury some years ago and even when it was better, he had to have weeks of physio to get his muscles working again. Yet here is this man, not only healed, but instantly up on his legs and walking out in front of everyone. Who can do this? And we see it again and again and again. Jesus heals sick people, opens the eyes of blind people, makes deaf people here gives the lame the ability to walk who can do that opening the eyes of the blind making the deaf hear making the lame to walk who can do that well again we don't have to we don't have to guess at the answer again keep your um, your finger in, in Luke 5 and and come back with me this time to Isaiah chapter 35 page 719 Page 719, Isaiah 35. Now Isaiah is written about 700 years before Jesus came, 700 years BC. And again, we're wondering who this person is who can do these amazing things. What does the Old Testament tell us? What does the Bible tell us? Look at Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 4. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. This passage is about God coming to earth. What will he do when he comes? Verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap, just as we've seen, like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. See, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. That's exactly what Jesus did. And who does Isaiah say will do these things? Verse 4, God. So when Jesus healed a paralysed man, well, we've already seen it. He did it to prove that he's none other than God himself. That's why he forgave sins, because he believed that he was none other than God himself. So from his actions, Jesus demonstrates that he is the creator. Jesus demonstrates that he is the restorer. And thirdly, Jesus demonstrates that he is the life giver. Come back with me for one final time to to Luke's Gospel. This time, chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. Page 1035. Page 1035. Well, this is an amazing moment, verse 11. Jesus was entering a little town called Nan. And verse 11 tells us he was being followed by by his disciples and also by a huge crowd. Well, of course, he was doing amazing things. Everybody wanted to see what was going to happen next. As he entered this, this town at the gate, 
he came across a funeral procession. People carrying a coffin out of the city, coming through the gate to go to the cemetery. Now, as someone who's taken dozens of funerals, let me tell you, they are all desperately sad occasions. They are terrible times. But look at the details here and it makes your heart break. Verse 12 tells us, the man who was dead was the only son of a widow. This woman had been bereaved before. Her husband had died and now her only son had died too. Can you feel how desperate this moment is? I've I've met families like this recently. Families who've had more than their fair share of tragedy. Verse 13, when Jesus saw this poor woman, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. See, he's moved with compassion, but his words, his words seem so insensitive. Don't cry. I'd never dream of saying that to somebody who was bereaved. Of course she should cry. Her only son is dead. She has no husband to look after her. Don't cry. Anyone else saying this would have displayed complete pastoral insensitivity and a total misunderstanding of the lack of the need to grieve. She needs to cry. I tell people when you're at the funeral, let it all out. Don't tell them not to cry. But then, of course, no one else could do what Jesus did next. Look at verse 14. He went up and touched the coffin and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up. What? Can you believe it? The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. What a remarkable event. Witnessed by the huge crowd following Jesus, witnessed by the mourners all going out of the gate, and soon told to people throughout the area, we read in verse 17. Question again, who is this man? Who can raise people to life? You and I can't. Again, throughout the Old Testament, it is God who gives life and God who raises the dead. And when you get home, have a look at 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 7, if you want to. And you'll see that clearly, there's no question, there's only God can raise the dead. 2 Kings 5, verse 7. Now, do you see, when Jesus walked this earth, he acted in ways that demonstrated that he was none other than God himself. So here's the question, what do you make of all this? Well, some people say to me, yeah, all these miracles. All these miracles, that's why I can't believe. And I say to them, look, if God were to step into his world, what would you expect him to do? Wouldn't you find it harder to believe if Jesus had done nothing out of this world? If someone were to walk up to you over coffee tonight and they were to say, I'm God, what would you say? I know what I'd say, I'd say, prove it. And if he couldn't prove it, I'd not believe him. That I'd call for the men in white coats to come and take him away. These miracles are exactly what we'd expect God to do in his world. We don't have to be embarrassed about them. They are Jesus proving who he is. If he hadn't done these, there'd be every reason not to believe him. Who else can do this but God? And so as we see Jesus doing it again and again and again, our question tonight is answered. How do we know that God exists? He came and walked among us. He demonstrated that he is God. If you're a Christian here tonight, next time somebody asks you how do you know that God exists, the answer is he came and walked among us. Because Jesus came. That's the best answer. You can point to creation. 
and you'll have a great debate. It is a revelation of God. The Bible says that. But I'll tell you where the debate will go. You will end up talking about the Big Bang. This is the answer. Jesus came among us. And of course, if this is true, then all bets are off when it comes to the existence of God. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, I want to ask you, what do you make of this evidence? It might be that it's the first time you've ever heard anything like this. No reason why you should instantly believe it. What do you make of it, though? Will you look into it? We've already uh, mentioned the course Christianity Explored that begins this Tuesday. It'd be great if you came along to that where we'll be looking more at these very questions. Can you trust the Bible? Can you trust Jesus? Is he really the person that we've been saying he is? It'd be a great course to come to. Come along, 7.15. You can book in, you can get one of these leaflets and book in, or you can just come along. We'd love to see you in the church centre. I'll be there with some friends. There's a meal and we'd love to see you along. You see, the reason we believe that God exists is because he's revealed himself. He came and walked among us. But as we close, let me say, you haven't understood Christianity until you answer the question, why? Why did he come and walk among us? Did he come just to say, I'm God, hello? No, much more than that. Until you can answer that question, why did he come among among us, you've never understood Christianity. Ah, but that's for another time. Let's pray together.